from the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know, this is a Guy's Take episode. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. This is the Crypto Economy Podcast, and I think I'm going to do a Guy's Take episode today. It kind of feels like a Guy's Take episode. Hadn't done that in a while. Um, And I was just kind of going through a bunch of the different notes that I have on this. And uh, I think I want to talk about... um, I think I want to talk about the trust model of Bitcoin. Like, what what are you leaving up to uh, be dictated or uh, trusting in someone else for? Um, What in the Bitcoin trust model versus the dollar trust model? you know, what's the comparison there? How, how really are these things laid out? Um, who, who are you trusting and what are you trusting to happen with the dollar as far as like the policies and issuance around the currency? And to what degree are you trusting or relying on someone else uh, with Bitcoin? So that's, that's what this will be. This will be a comparative trust model, Bitcoin versus the mighty dollar. Um, which is just really the general fiat model. Um, So we're talking about decentralized digital cash on proof-of-work blockchains, a.k.a. Bitcoin, versus fiat national currency, a.k.a. the dollar. Um, We're just using the dollar because it's the most powerful or the the one with the most reach. So we're we're quote-unquote steel-manning it. We're using the strongest currency in fiat to compare to the strongest currency in uh, cryptocurrency. Okay, so the dollar. How do you know? What about issuance? Let's, let's start with that. Um, because issuance is a really important thing. Anytime money is the ultimate non-resource because it's just a measuring stick. Um, you don't use money for anything. Money is not consumed. And uh, because of that, its supply and demand is 100% based on its supply. Um, like its demand is valuable as a currency, and uh, so in relation to its supply versus the the pool of goods available in the economy, if you print one new dollar into existence, then you are stealing that value. The dollar itself has no value, so you are taking, you are watering down the value of every other dollar in circulation. So knowing the issuance rate. Knowing the rate at which the value is being taken from our, uh, our uh, rec- records of favors exchanged in the economy um, for savers and anybody doing business in the dollar and anyone earning a you know, fixed salary or uh, uh, hourly rate, uh, you must know the issuance because the issuance determines uh, it has a direct correlation between how much value you're actually earning. So if you don't know the issuance rate, you you have no idea, you know, you're getting paid. That's, I mean, why, why does the, think about it. If uh, the economy is becoming ever more productive, uh, then that means the currency, if at a stable value, would get more and more valuable over time because there's more stuff in the economy. There's more production and, uh, you know, computers are closing the gaps and making things more efficient and systems are getting better, which means that 
someone getting paid the same wage over two or three years, if the economy gets more productive, that person should have an increasingly more uh, higher purchasing power uh, for their income. And yet we kind of see the opposite happen, particularly in the lowest incomes. You see people who are on minimum wage always fighting to have a higher minimum wage because the minimum wage is becoming more and more worthless as time goes on. And it's this ever-increasing, it's like every two, three years or whatever, you go back to ever since there was a minimum wage and it's done nothing but increase because, you know, if we had the first minimum wage, which was probably like, I don't know, a quarter, uh, a quarter, uh, 25 cent an hour or something stupid. I, I have no idea what the first minimum wage is. I don't even know how far back it goes. Um, I don't pay attention to the years on the chart. I just see the trend. Uh, so uh, whatever it was, obviously everyone would think that going back to the first uh, minimum wage would be absolutely ridiculous. This is all a consequence of the issuance of the currency. So you have to trust that those in power will not issue the currency, which is really counterfeiting, um, to steal its value. And anybody doing business getting paid in or keeping savings in the dollar will be paying for that new issuance. You will lose value of product productivity that you have had in the past if you're saving um, because they want to spend money on something, because they have some goal or political end that they think is worth taking, confiscating your savings for. But even so, you don't know how much they've issued. Um, you can sort of know that they've done it if you're, if you're super vigilant, but they don't even really know how much they've issued. Uh, they issue estimates of, you know, M1 and M2, but you don't really, it's really kind of a guess. Um, I mean, like they say, it's estimates, and you're also trusting their numbers. So you're also trusting that they are both aggregating and finding all of the different metrics that are meaningful in the production of currency, and then properly estimating those numbers, and then openly reporting them to you, even though it may make them look like terrible people and look like they have bad policies, which they don't really have much incentive to be honest considering the fact that it's really easy to be dishonest and corrupt as a politician. It's basically the whole, how the whole show works. So really, you have no way of knowing how much currency is in circulation uh, or being issued because it's being issued in so many places across the financial system all at once. Banks are able to issue it um, based on their fractional reserve. And when, like, so when you put a deposit in the bank, they are able to both guarantee that deposit, which you, know, you gave them, and also, they can create new money uh, out of thin air to loan out to someone else and make incredible interest rates off of uh, without telling you that they're liable for that other money that would mean your deposits are gone. But even worse, those then the loans from your local bank then get deposited into another bank, and then they get to issue money off of that deposit yet again. So this happens uh, in an increasingly uh, kind of a decreasing chain because the standard, uh, I think the, the common fractional reserve, quote unquote, is like 90%. So if you deposit $100, it gets another 90 gets issued into existence and then that gets deposited somewhere else and then $81 of that gets issued into existence. So really what happens in the banking system 
uh, as it gets moved from deposit in one bank to the next, to the next, to the next, is uh, roughly, um, and it could always come back to the same bank. You know, that, that $81 could then be deposited back in your bank, and then they get to issue a bunch of uh, uh, new money again from that. Uh, but roughly just with standard how things go, not even like those crazy 40 to 1 loans and all the utter insanity that, and liabilities that some of these banks have wrapped themselves up in, all that aside, just standard fractional reserve typically creates about $900 into the banking system for every $100 deposited. Um, so what a guess. I mean, think about trying to uh, balance the books of every bank that is doing this and find out where the actual original deposits are from. And then you can't even audit the Fed. The Fed's, uh, I mean, we spent decades, multiple politicians trying to audit the Fed, and they've gotten nowhere. Um, and we also, it's leaked numerous times that the Fed is doing business off their balance sheet. So even if we did audit the Fed, there's tons of money in currency issuance that they, they're not even, we're not even going to see if we audit them. Um, back in the 2008 financial crisis, there was this huge I mean, there's $9 trillion were created off balance sheet. And it's mind-blowing that the media just kind of brushed over this. Um, but $9 trillion is, is literally is country-buying money. Like, you could outright purchase multiple countries um, with that kind of money. Um, so this is, this is world-shaking amounts of capital being just created into thin air and then doing business with um it's the most it's the greatest power that you could possibly have in the modern day is the power to create currency and you can't even check you're completely trusting them who are profiting and gain the most power from that authority you're trusting that they're going to be completely honest with you that they're not going to just buy the media um, and, all, you know, all conspiracy aside, whatever, you're just trusting that they're going to be completely open and honest, even though they don't want to be audited. Why, why not? You know, like they're a public institution, quote unquote, right? Um, they're our representatives. Uh, we should know. So why, why are they even being, why would they even resist being audited? Because um, I'm sure it's because of their deep, deep, undying honesty and uh, lack of corruption. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's your trust model with the issuance of the currency. Um, and you get their best guess as to how much has been created in circulation. How does that compare to Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin, you can verify in a couple of hours, really. Um, you can sync with the network in, you know, 8, 12 hours. Uh, and completely verify with mathematical certainty um, and timestamps that go back um, to the original date of creation, go all the way back to the Genesis block, that the rules that have been, have absolutely had no alteration to them whatsoever, that the monetary policy has been unchanged. There was no address or signature. Um, uh, that 
you know, cheated the system, that spent coins that they did not have the keys to. Um, no user or developer. It's open source software, so you can equally verify the code that is doing this work. Now, you may not have that specialty, but that is open to you. Like, you may also not have any idea how to audit the Fed books if they released it and how to check or even know how much they're actually um, issuing into existence. You may not have the slightest clue how to do all that, and it's probably going to be too many numbers to deal with anyway. Somebody highly specialized would have to do it, but it's not even open, so who cares? You, if you can do it one way or the other, they're not even going to tell you those numbers so that you can check it yourself. Bitcoin is entirely open. The rules going into it are open. The math that is going into it is completely open. And the entire ledger down to the 100 millionth of a coin is also completely open and verifiable. Um, and not only are you, uh, can you easily do an audit whenever you want to, there is an ongoing live audit of the entire currency system it gives you down to the 100 millionth exactly how much currency is being issued um, and that there is uh, uh, irreversible proof of work being done in order to um, issue that new currency, not just being done arbitrarily to buy a country in Europe's debt so that they have to do what we say, but that the entire system is audited on an ongoing basis every 10 minutes from its creation to the current block. So back to the dollar. What are you doing with the consistency of the rules? How, how, do you, how can you know that the rules have not changed, that they haven't altered it behind the scenes, particularly if you already cannot know exactly how much currency is in circulation? How do you know the rules are the same? Well, basically, you trust that politicians and bankers would not unilaterally change or create new rules that granted themselves immense authority, even though thousands of pages are altered or added to the giant list of federal, um, uh, oh, good Lord, financial rules and the spaghetti bowl of nonsense around all the different institutions that quote-unquote regulate our horribly corrupt um, financial system, uh, you know, we're just trusting them that they would never use their authority for their own good, um, that they would never use their power to, their authority to keep all of the information secret and basically release whatever it is that they think we should be able to see in order to profit, um, that they would never use uh, their authority and secrecy uh, and their complete sur their surveillance powers, their ability to see everything that we do against us, um, that, uh, that they would always do the moral and right thing, even though they have an incredibly um, unbalanced position in the system where they can see what everybody else can do, you cannot see anything they do, where they can uh, issue currency as they see fit, and you can't even check to see if they're doing it, and you certainly can't issue currency. Nobody else can issue currency. Everybody else has to earn it. They have to work really, really hard and trade voluntarily with other people and cooperate and uh, provide things that people actually want into the economy. They have to produce goods. 
none of these people have to do that. They do it based on a set of rules that grant them the authority to make these, uh, to issue these currencies, to uh, uh, basically have their position of uh, surveillance. And of course, um, their unearned profits and market position just in general. Uh, somebody who can, you know, if, uh, if my neighbor, if I could say, you know, like I told my neighbor, I'll keep your $1,000 in savings safe. Um, if they gave it to me and then I could just create another thousand dollars from it, like, and then earn interest, like within two months, I would never work again a day in my life. I would just do that. Um, like, like if you gave me a thousand dollars, then I can earn 10% interest on it for a year. Oh my God. I'd, I'd be issuing credit cards in no time and I'd be loaning that stuff out left and right. And then I would just have this giant pool of income, uh, by, just getting in other people's deposits and nobody would have a clue that I couldn't pay for anything if everybody came asking for their money back out of the bank. Um, but, you know, luckily, like, I would have the right to issue that currency anew. Um, but there's quite the barrier to becoming a bank. Um, another one of the consequences of those thousands and thousands of pages of financial regulation that do such a good job of keeping things like 2008 financial crisis from happening is obviously they don't ever happen. So what about Bitcoin? No currency is issued outside of the rules, ever. No new currency is minted without competing in the proof-of-work market, and nothing, absolutely nothing, not one single one hundred millionth of a coin can be created off the balance sheet unless you're trusting some central institution, unless you want to just trust some exchange. But that's not Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin verifies every last decimal point of currency. It is only with a, uh, another, it is only in the situation where I give, like, like, like I gave an example of issuing, uh, uh, somebody gives me $1,000 to keep safe. I can say you have $1,000 in my account or in your account with my bank, but I could also just spend $900 of that. Uh, off somewhere else, or in in this context, Bitcoin. Let's say let's say we're using one Bitcoin. I spend 0.9 Bitcoin somewhere else. Uh, the funny thing is, is that I can't create that new 0.9 Bitcoin. Only within my ledger can I trick people into thinking that I have money that does not actually exist. As soon as I put it back on the blockchain, as soon as I put it back into a contract, um, verified by the Bitcoin system. I completely lose any privilege or authority position that I had by uh, holding someone else's keys to their coin. But that's why Bitcoin rule number one is not your keys, not your coins. So you verify. You verify, and again, we have a full 100% unaltered live ongoing audit of the entire system every 10 minutes. So. I'd say that's uh, three check marks now for Bitcoin uh, being the vastly superior trust model here. All right. So what about when there is new money being issued? So when we know trillions of new dollars are being issued, uh, particularly as unpayable debts, um, or let's say there let's say there could be payable debts. Um, Regardless, we have to trust that other economies and countries 
um, that the the world at large will still blindly desire, will still have, um, will continue their demand for a currency that is leeching purchasing power from their incomes, from their savings, and uh, from their uh, uh, the uh, contracts that they are holding and doing business in dollars with. Um, and when debts are absolutely going through the roof, uh, when uh, they get exponentially worse every year and we're getting to the point, particularly in the U.S. as an example, where the interest, the in, even, <laughs> think about this, think about this. Okay, so the government and Federal Reserve have unilateral control over the interest rate. They can essentially dictate the interest rate on their own credit card and they still have run up debts so freaking high, so massive that they cannot, that we are getting to the point that the, the actual tax revenue barely pays off the interest rate or pa- barely pays off the interest on the debt. That is how bad it is. Imagine that the minimum payment on your credit card that you could n- knock your 20% interest rate or your 18 or 28% interest rate. Who knows what your interest rate on your credit cards are? They're ridiculous. Imagine if you could basically issue some public statement and be like, my interest rate should be 1% because I have very important things to do. And you're going to send it off to your credit card company and then they just have to change your interest rate. That's essentially what the government does. They get together and they have all this pop and, pomp and circumstance. And they talk about how important it is that they have control over goods in the economy and that they get to manipulate where uh, spending power is directed uh, because they are, they are the ones that have all the great and moral and good uh, uh, vision for the world. And everybody else is just a horrible, terrible crap of a person. Um, so they need to be in charge and they need to basically move all the pieces. And... <laughs> And they still, and they, and they drive up debts so massive that, uh, that they, can't even, they can't even pay them by confiscating giant percentages of income from everybody in the economy. That is pretty staggeringly obnoxious. Whew. Okay, I'm tired. Uh, I'm going to take a break real quick, and we'll hit our sponsor, and we will jump right back in. How does Bitcoin work? What about Bitcoin? Well, again, you can't issue Bitcoin as debt. Bitcoin is only issued through proof of work. And again, you verify that all the way back to the Genesis block. You can verify every single hash of every single uh, block and know beyond question that the probability of that block being produced is low enough that somebody, that there was immense amounts of proof of work, of hashing, Un, uh, irreversible hashing that, well, not irreversible, but would have to be redone. That's the, that's the core of the Bitcoin system. That's why proof of work is such a uh, fascinating mechanism in order to gain consensus because huge amounts of energy and resources would have to be expended to redo all of those blocks. And that doesn't even allow you to change the rules. A full node will protect you from having the rules changed on you. That is just to go back in time and edit a block in the past so you can actually measure 
you can actually measure what the amount of security you have with the number of confirmations for the price of energy, for the price of electricity, and the amount of proof of work that has to be done. So in the dollar sense, your trust is completely unmeasurable. It's just this abstract thing where you believe politicians are all good people and that there is no such thing as greed in government and that all of this ridiculous authority and monopolistic power given to this institution will not be abused against you, which you can't really measure. It's just kind of like either you believe the cartoonish story that the government is representative of the people, even though they never seem to actually behave that way, or uh, you don't. And there's not really any way to measure that. I mean, let I me mean, think about it. If you, if you measured um, how many politicians keep their promises versus uh, uh, don't keep their promises, uh, you'd probably have a 99 to 1 uh, ratio of promises not kept of uh, subsidies going to large corporations, even though the politician talked about how big corporations are terrible, that, um, that taxes went up even though they said taxes were going to go down, uh, that everybody was going to have cheap health care even though health care continued to get more expensive the last 1,600 times they campaigned on we're going to finally fix health care this time with this 2,000 additional pages of crap that we're going to mix into the system. So that trust, that security in thinking that you're going to get any of those things that, you know, were campaigned for uh, is incredibly low, but it could be inflated. Maybe, maybe you stumble upon a really honest politician who isn't doing it for um, the position or the prestige or the social power. Uh, they're just doing it for the good of everyone else, and they're being completely honest with everyone and not telling them what they want to hear, but instead telling them what they think the truth is even though it might make, you know, someone not like them. Uh, so you can trust that. You, you know, you can, you can say that maybe, maybe that's possible. Maybe that has happened in the past. But you don't know. You can have somebody, like, there's no way to define it. Like, I can't, like, let's say Ron Paul is the closest candidate that probably had a lot of policies and plans in place that I would highly agree with um, and that I supported. So that's the closest that I have ever come to a trusted relationship with a politician. And, but I don't, I don't really have any way to measure that. I can't, like, I don't really know that Ron Paul would do that in his presidency. I, Ron Paul never became president. So, like, that trust model is still, even though I think I know Ron Paul, even though I've listened to him speak a lot, I don't know him. I've never met him. My, my actual level of measurable trust is incredibly small. Now, what about Bitcoin? What's, what's our, how do you measure security in Bitcoin? Well, proof of work. Proof of work allows you to know uh, something that has happened in the past requires exactly, or, or excuse me, roughly, based on the uh, hardware that's available on the market, based on the average price of electricity, you can actually come up with a capital, a number, an, an amount of capital necessary to expend to reverse a transaction that you made. So, you know, if you spend, if, if you make a billion dollar transaction, if you wait, you know, however many, like if you have a number for how, how much uh, energy and capital goes into 
providing the proof of work for one block, well, you can calculate exactly how many blocks, exactly how many confirmations are needed to give that $1 billion transfer $1 billion worth of security. And you can just wait and know that there is no authority. There is no special person with the power to just erase something in the middle of the ledger and write something else in. The proof of work has to be redone. And you have a relatively strong guarantee that no one would reverse a billion-dollar payment if it cost them a billion dollars to reverse it because there's no profit to be made there. There is no special privilege. There is no um, political manipulation that they get to do. Um, there's a direct cost. It costs you a billion dollars, and you, quote-unquote, make a billion dollars only if they're in a position to immediately profit off of that one transaction that you made. That is a vastly superior degree of measuring the trust, measuring the security that you get with anything that happens in the, uh, in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem versus uh, maybe a transaction you make through a bank or a politician that you try to vote for or gets put in power. Like, you know, how do you measure the security there? You know, what if your bank doesn't like this transaction that you did a month ago? Uh, it's usually not even settled by then. Um, it can be reversed. What if you're a merchant? Merchants get uh, payments reversed on them all the time. It's this huge, unspoken, multi-billion dollar cost in the economy that merchants just eat on our behalf because there's nothing they can do. The bank simply reverses the payment, uh, and they almost always uh, err on the side of the customer, which is not a, which is not a bad policy. Uh, I think that's, that's probably smart, and the merchant is more likely to be able to take, uh, uh, take the cost. Um, and, you know, you want the market to be consumer-driven. You want the customer to have um, say in where they put their money. So if they get a crappy product, you want to be able to reverse that. If they get cheated, you want them to be able to reverse that to some degree. But you can have far greater security in actually measuring it. Um, you can have far greater security in a provable smart contract that gives that shares that with the merchant because right now the merchant is getting screwed typically so the merchant is also a customer in this whole game uh it is not it's not only it's not a one-sided thing there's a relationship here and you have these brilliant systems like um the two-party uh two-party escrowed payment where you can actually make an agreement with somebody and not release the money if you've been scammed, that you, you have a fallback, and at the same time, you're not completely ripping the power away from the merchant in case the customer is screwing the merchant, which is absolutely something that happens. Because what we want is not one side to always win. We want, the, we want to find the honest player in as many transactions as possible and make sure it goes in their direction. And Bitcoin has a provable level of security. Bitcoin has a measurable level of security, and uh, uh, Bitcoin has uh, programmatic, uh, a language, a scripting language that can program higher degrees of trust for transactions that take multiple days, maybe transactions that take months to work out, transactions that have many parties to it. And rather than having the escrow or the power all given to some lawyer, or um, split up between multiple institutions with huge costs 
and uh, uh, tons of people involved for significant amount of time, like like mortgages or whatever. I mean, the overhead and like closing costs for mortgages are in thousands and thousands of dollars, like you know, nine thousand, ten thousand dollars just for closing costs, and a lot of it is about proving identity. A lot of it is about escrow and security and making sure you have a representative for each side. And now you can do that programmatically. So your trust model, your trust model there is, again, verifiability versus authority. Um, and I think, I think you're looking at a situation where the Bitcoin, again, wins hands down in that scenario. All right. Let's go back to let's go back to the dollar. Let's talk about let's talk about voting, the vote. The power of voting. So when you vote, you're particularly in a federal election. A federal election is about as far away from any influence as you can have in voting. Like you have local votes like sheriff and you know, maybe your HOA or uh, your local board of education or something like that, you can actually go talk to them. You can actually know the people who are on that board and, you know, maybe have gone to school with them or grown up with them, so on and so forth. Like local, you actually have some degree of influence, even though it is still incredibly inefficient. Federal vote, you could not be more removed. Um, it, it might as well be, you know, a cartoon or a game show of some sort, like, you don't, you, the consequences are incredibly difficult to trace back to where the government spent the money. Uh, the politicians, nobody ever knows them. You only see them in the lighting that they want. They spend millions of dollars on PR campaigns to make sure that they're telling every audience exactly what that audience wants to hear. It's a joke of thinking that you actually know who your politician is. Um, and so the, the, the vote is already of incredibly little influence, but it's also being watered down with millions of just average people. And what actually gets anywhere is something that can appeal to everyone. So it's the lowest common denominator of all of our ignorance that you can actually sell to the public at large. It has to be something that essentially fits on a bumper sticker. So with the dollar, with picking these representatives, you basically have to trust that the average person is incredibly well-informed, that they understand finance and sound money, that they know the history and sheer destructive power um, as far as like past empires and civilizations go of completely unpayable and astronomical debts that they will get, that they should stop spending money when the government is running out of money, uh, and that uh, they would never be selfish and try to vote themselves impossible benefits at the uh, urging of opportunists and politicians who simply want that social power and uh, are using exactly what any normal person would want, like telling them you're going to give them $1,000 a month uh, nobody would ever vote for that uh, just because it benefits them. And uh, none of those politicians would ever uh, make a uh, campaign or push for something that was unsustainable and that uh, they would never do it just to appeal to people so that they could get into that position where they are basically wealthy for the remainder of their lives. No matter what they do, they can be paid 
hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars just for a speaking engagement, and they can immediately sell a book and make it on the bestsellers list because they have all this incredible social power and authority that they got from essentially a giant high school popularity contest. So that's how you're trusting that the vote will produce the results you want. And arguably, there's, a new, policy, there's new policies and new rules with every single, uh, uh, everything, every single cabinet and Congress and president that goes into office. We get these stupid swings back and forth, and the only uh, seemingly uh, a steady uh, uh, standards, the only uh, consistently never-ending uh, things that all Congresses and all presidents do is running up massive debts, starting a couple new wars, uh, spending enormous amounts on anything and everything, uh, you know, blowing uh, another half a trillion dollars on uh, uh, increasing the cost of education, um, issuing new debt across the board, and basically putting in a new, I mean, Every single time the government is there to save us with some giant new impossible benefit, and then the next one has, a, has one lined up right behind them. Uh, you know, one's an increase in the minimum wage, the next one's free health care for everybody, and the next one's a $1,000 paycheck, and the next one's everybody gets a solar panel and blah, 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 and we have these massive unfunded liabilities to the tunes of like, what is it, a hundred and something trillion dollars? Just a laughably ridiculous number that will never happen. How does that compare to Bitcoin? How do you know that those problems will not arise in Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is full audit or nothing. End of story. You trust nobody. You, you trust that people are going to be generally stupid and selfish and that even when they try to do good, they're probably going to do ignorant. They're probably going to be ignorant and do the wrong thing anyway. So you run your own full node and you create a defensive, you become part of a defensive network that falls back on the shelling point of monetary policy, the core and original monetary policy of the Bitcoin system. I think Bitcoin wins there pretty good too. And now this one may be a little bit, little bit redundant, but you'd also have to trust that the police will enforce the right monetary policy, that you know, the FBI will stop counterfeiters and the military will um, arguably attack competitive currencies and uh, keep the dollar strong by uh, making sure uh, countries all over the world are using it, uh, that the police would not enforce uh, immoral laws or um, uh, enforce the funding of explosively stupid projects that are doomed to fail um, or immoral and never-ending wars that, like you think about, I, I've said in a recent um, uh, episode, uh, how, many, how many people do you think can actually name the number of countries that the U.S. is at war with? Now, not the number, excuse me, name each country. And my argument would be that, well, I think, a, I think a simple poll would make it real obvious that not everybody, hardly anybody actually, um, probably a tiny, tiny, probably, probably Scott Horton, and that's it, uh, is the only one that could actually name them all. I don't even think I could name them all. 
Uh, but if the average person, which clearly we've gone far beyond thinking that the average person can do this, but if the average person cannot say which countries exactly that we are at war with or that we are infiltrating and manipulating the elections of and, you know, doing covert nation building in, so on and so forth, if the average person cannot name this, then how is it that supposedly these things are done in, represented, in, in representation of the average person? Like, how, is this, how, how are those wars supposed to be something that it was, it was the people wanted? The people wanted these wars terribly, and, they, and they, we just had to do it, and we all voted to get our representatives to go and start these wars. If people don't even know which countries we're at war with, how could it have been them that started the, the campaigns to actually make these wars happen? Did they just forget that it was like three years later and we had no idea who we were actually going to war with? Or is it the politicians and the military-industrial complex wanted a war with, insert country A, B, C, whatever, and so they sold it to the public like a product that we had to vote on where we are watered down in a pool of hundreds of millions of the least common denominator of ignorance and uh, where we are just told that it will be all good things and we are appealed to in the dumbest bumper sticker-like way possible and uh, that is uh, how those things actually came about. So you have to trust that those processes will produce sustainable projects, will produce institutions that produce good results, um, like cheap health care, uh, like cheap and good education, uh, and that uh, they won't be terrible um, projects and institutions that decrease the quality of all these things, increase the price of health care, like the last 30 did, or that they aren't so ridiculously expensive uh, that they could never work anyway, but they sound really great uh, as a campaign promise. Well, Bitcoin is not your keys, not your coins. If, if they are my keys, uh, uh, a lot of that is actually enabled by the issuance of new currency, and we've already gone over the, the verifiability and the trust model in knowing that that currency has not been issued and not participating in the network where, those, uh, where that currency has been issued. The power of the market is totally in the consumer's ability to choose which network they are participating in by running a full node. Uh, and uh, at the same time, confiscation is not possible directly. Um, I mean, it can be. It can be coerced and taken, but... Uh, None of those projects could possibly survive if they cannot directly confiscate the wealth from everybody in the country, which, um, which is uh, all these things are done through inflation and the issuing of currencies anyway. So it doesn't really matter uh, if uh, police enforce it or not. It's something that is unsustainable and it would collapse very quickly one way or the other. And then we're back at the dollar on the last one. Trust that interest rate manipulation will be done to the benefit of the public instead of the interest of the central bank and the government that get to decide those price controls. Um, the interest rate is the price on time. And being able to dictate the interest rate, uh, the reserve interest rate for every dollar, really, the, 
the top of the totem pole every dollar uh, that is issued into existence. Uh, the interest rate is the price of that dollar over time. So, uh, and that is a critical price in the economy. It's one of the most important prices in the economy, and it is one of the most powerful prices in the economy. The value of time is absolutely critical to knowing whether or not you should do something today based on the number of resources that are available right now versus do something in a couple of years when the resources are either uh, higher or lower or the productivity is higher or lower, et cetera, et cetera. So if the government and central bank have the ability to manipulate this interest rate, they have the ability to uh, spend value today at whatever price they see fit, not a market price, but whatever price they think the market should be setting at, they can spend, uh, they can spend or grant themselves uh, value and production from the future in order to be spent today. That is what all these giant debts and unfunded liabilities are. They are taking uh, uh, all the capital that we are producing in 20 years uh, and screwing the future so that they can get uh, votes and fulfill promises, uh, fulfill the tiny percentage of promises that they actually do fulfill uh, today and push that cost into the future because future people are a whole lot easier to please because they're not around. Uh, all we have are present people and they're hard to please. So you have to trust in the dollar that that um, authority-based interest rate uh, rather than a market-based price, that those price controls will produce good results as opposed to the normal consequence of price controls, which is market disaster, um, bad uh, disconnect between supply and demand, and huge imbalances in the market like massive debts. But let's say, let's say somehow we do get the, uh, uh, you know, some, you know, great public serving central bank and government that has no interest in their own goals or their own vision of the world. And uh, interest rate is set just like the market would, that it's completely based on supply and demand, and they just have really good data sources and really incredibly smart, you know, board of old economists uh, who know everything about, you know, the price of time and, you know, exactly how many resources are being produced now versus in the future, et cetera, et cetera. Let's, let's give it the benefit of the doubt and say they do know all of those things. What about Bitcoin? You can't set interest rates in Bitcoin because you can't control the issuance of the currency. The only reason you can do that in the dollar is because they are the lender of last resort. They can issue money that doesn't exist at whatever interest rate they think uh, that they see fit. Um, so we go all the way back to the beginning. If you can't issue Bitcoin outside of the rules, if you can't issue Bitcoin past 21 million, well, then you can't do any of that manipulation. You can't set the interest rate price. The interest rate price, will, uh, the price of the interest rate uh, uh, will simply, I mean, you can say, oh, interest rates should be this, but then there'll just be a black market for the real um, market price for the interest uh, because, you know, you can't, I mean, that's why you don't, you don't get to tell markets what, the, what reality is. Uh, markets and prices are there to inform people of what is actually happening, of the actual production costs of certain goods and the amount of capital and either 
surplus of specialty or uh, lack of specialty and expertise um, in the industry to make it either really easy to produce this good or really difficult to produce this good. And all, all this information and the different valuations and uh, subjective uh, measurements and opinions of everybody who's operating in the economy and purchasing this good A over good B, all of these billions and billions and billions of different price points and interactions go into finding a market price and an equilibrium uh, in an ever-changing environment. Uh, prices are not arbitrary things. Prices are incredibly powerful and useful, um, like deeply informative pieces of information that is aggregated from more, from more data than could ever be pulled into one place and certainly could ever be understood or properly assessed by one person or a group of people. And because uh, currency cannot be issued to manipulate this price, this price for the most part outside of, you know, having to trust some exchange or um, outside of some pyramid scheme or uh, institution loaning out, quote unquote, uh, more value than is actually backed by Bitcoin, outside of the, the isolated single institution uh, uh, incidences, uh, you never, there cannot be a manipulated interest rate in Bitcoin. As long as you were trading actual Bitcoin, as long as you were using uh, Bitcoin in a contract that institutes or that continues to enforce the uh, uh, issuance of the currency like the Lightning Network, like you can't create um, Bitcoin that don't exist within the Lightning Network or within a payment channel. Uh, so as long as you are using uh, a model or a smart contract that reverts back to Bitcoin and uses the uh, and works within the Bitcoin consensus rules, uh, a signature system and um, uh, issuance and proof of work system, then you never have to worry about uh, fundamental interest rate manipulation uh, or like the 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 foundation of the economy. Uh, you, interest rates cannot be manipulated at the level of the currency. Only if everyone ended up trusting one giant bank to hold everybody's Bitcoin could they then have some unfair influence over the interest rate, but it would undoubtedly be short-lived because uh, it should be obvious in a far, far faster uh, way uh, that they are in fact cheating or um, uh, risking far, far more uh, capital than they are actually saying uh, that they are doing. And all you pretty much have to do is have a run on that bank or exchange where everybody is trying to withdraw and the whole gig is up. Whereas in uh, the dollar sense, you can't really have a run on the Federal Reserve. Um, Federal Reserve is not going to give you your gold anyway, and they'll just issue new money if a bunch of people come asking. Or they'll probably just deny it. They'll probably just say, no, you can't have your money. Uh, who knows? <laughs> oh, so. One of the most important takeaways is this, is how much of this stuff is connected. I talked about a big variety of things here. I talked about, you know, um, uh, huge government programs, uh, massive amounts of government debt, whether or not voting produces good results or not. Uh, trusting a politician to institute their promises, um, that no currency is issued outside of the explicit monetary policy given to the public, 
um, that their data is accurate when they tell you how much currency actually exists, all of these different things. And you have to understand how many, like almost every one of these things is indirectly or directly related to the power to issue debt into existence. Almost all of these things are unsustainable without that power. It's why every single government has a central bank essentially in their pocket or vice versa. Every central bank has a government in their pocket because they can essentially institute the one power that every government will always bow to uh, because it is the ultimate power to be able to promise your public anything during your campaign because you can just issue currency to pay for it. All of those things, the, the, and it has such widespread consequences. It, it degrades culture. It, uh, it, it cr increases just gross, like, negligent consumerism and frivolous expenditures and it creates this culture of no money down, buy everything with debt. Uh, it destroys the, the uh, tendency to save. Um, it completely changes incentives. It creates a wholly different type of person who grows up in a world of incredible debts and where everyone goes into debt for everything meaningful that they have to purchase versus one where you have to have savings to back up any of that consumption. And it also creates horrible consequences in income inequality when the only people who get to keep their purchasing power are the people who can, you know, have all this excess capital who can save it in stocks and bonds and T-bills and all this crap that actually pays them interest. Whereas anybody who's living hand to mouth is just seeing all of their fixed income completely confiscated from them and fighting tooth and nail to get, you know, uh, salary and uh, hourly rate increases and increases in the minimum wage. There's this huge problem caused by the issuance of all this money to, you know, please the ignorant, to, you know, give them whatever stupid thing that they think the rich are going to be the ones to pay for. And the poor, the ones that don't have any savings, the ones that don't put their money in stocks and bonds and whose best help or their best chance is to stash a bunch of cash under their mattress or you know, in in the back of their closet or something, and, and that's the only savings that they have. They don't have those options to them, and all the while, any value that they can save is being confiscated by all these idiot programs, by all these completely false and unsustainable promises. And all of this stuff is connected, uh, and none of it could exist even close to the degree that it exists today without that one power to counterfeit and issue currency at will to, to please political power. Without that one authority, without the control over the currency, everything changes. There are so many fundamental shifts in the economy that no longer can be sustained because they cannot simply print to fill in the gap in the imbalance. And when that happens, those institutions become completely different. The incentives become completely different. The cost to the voter and the visible, uh, uh, the the visibility of the cost in in that system become uh, 
open. You, you can you can start to see the the cascading problems that they have. You 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 cannot issue debt for things that everybody wants if you can't uh, if you can't actually pay for it. Um, so the the shift in in the culture and in the the fundamental elements and incentives in the economy is drastic at the lowest level. So the consequences are far-reaching. There is no corner of the economy that goes unchanged when that power either exists or does not exist, if that power is actually kept in check by the market. And that is the revolution that is Bitcoin. It is the ability for the market to actually hold sway. Um, It was, uh, what was it, Milton Friedman, and I don't think, maybe it was Milton Friedman, maybe it was Hayek, I don't know. I think it was Milton Friedman that we will never actually have a a secure money again until we get the things out of the hands of the government. Or or that the, I think the only way we'll have it is if we come, if we find some roundabout way to remove it from the control of the government. I hope that was Milton Friedman. I think, I think I'm right on that. Maybe somebody can check and uh, post uh, in, on my Twitter or something or send me a message if I'm wrong. Yeah, so that was a hell of, a, hell of an episode, a bunch of ranting here. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys got something out of that. I know it was a little bit, uh, this was kind of a test run here. I just had a, kind of had a couple of bullet points, and I was just going to be talking off the cuff the whole time. So I hope you guys enjoyed this guy's take episode. This is a comparative trust model of Bitcoin versus the mighty dollar. And it looks like across the board, Bitcoin kicked ass. Uh, yeah, um, let's see. Let's tally. We've got nine points for Bitcoin and zero points for the dollar. Wow. Bitcoin did really good. What a surprise. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, we are done here. I hope you enjoyed this guy's take episode. Uh, do not forget to follow me on Twitter at the Crypto Economy. And uh, check out CryptoEconomy.life where I will have this episode plus hundreds of articles uh, in audio form, little audio articles to read of uh, everything about Bitcoin, economics, uh, money, cypherpunks, philosophy, all everything around the crypto economy, everything around the economy that is secured cryptographically by Bitcoin and similar systems. So uh, do not forget to check out CryptoEconomy.life. And I will catch you all back here for another episode tomorrow on the Crypto Economy Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and take it easy.